Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, David Busis interviews Scott Jones, an admissions consultant at Seven Sage and a former reader at UVA School of Law. Hi, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David, a partner at Seven Sage, and I am so pleased to host Scott Jones. Scott received his bachelor's from the University of Michigan in 1997. After working full-time as a paramedic, he was accepted to medical school and law school at the University of Virginia. He chose to attend law school and enrolled at UVA in 2002 on a JAG officer contract with the United States Marine Corps. Informed by his recruiter in the fall of that year that the Iraq war was imminent, he chose to replace his JAG contract with a ground officer contract, took an extended leave of absence from law school, and reported to Marine Corps Officer Candidate School in January 2003. After receiving his commission as a second lieutenant, he became an intelligence officer and deployed twice to Iraq. He then returned to law school. After graduating, he spent nine years as a state and federal prosecutor, specializing in violent crimes and crimes against children. As a remote employee for the admission office at UVA Law, he reviewed and recommended admission or denial of admission for more than 1,500 applications and represented UVA at several law school fairs and LSAC events. He currently runs the Safe Passage Children's Advocacy Center in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So Scott, I want to start by asking you what you did for UVA Law. So I was one of a number of UVA alumni that they had look at law school applications and evaluate them and dis- and make recommendations on whether or not the applicant should be admitted. And what did that process actually look like? I want you to give us as much wonky detail as possible. Did you get a FedEx package in the mail with a bunch of applications, um, an email with an application? Sure. So it's actually, it's an, it's an online system that LSAC has for everybody, for all the, well, I assume it's for all the participating law schools, but that is just an assumption. But there's a web-based interface. So I would log on and on a daily basis, there would be new applicants added to my queue. Now at UVA, there is, they had, I'm not doing it this year, but I assume they still have a goal, I guess is a good word. Cause it's not, I don't want to use the word cutoff because it's not a cutoff, but they have a goal LSAT score and a goal GPA. And then they divide up the applications kind of the following way. So some of us, not myself, but some of the, the file readers would get the people that had an LSAT score and a GPA above that kind of goal target, whatever the heck you want to call it. I was assigned people who were presumptive denials because either their LSAT score or their GPA or both were below that kind of target. And my job was to go through all those applicants. Well, I didn't have all those applicants. I had roughly a third of those applicants, but to go through all of them and look for the people, find the people that UVA should admit anyway, even though their LSAT score or GPA or both were below the target scores. So I would go online. My queue would be on this web-based interface that the details of which aren't really important. I would click on a particular application and boom, up would pop about 30 pages that the average application would be in length. And I would go start with page one and go through page 30. I would then write a summary of that applicant 
that would be somewhere between a paragraph and a page, depending upon kind of how interesting they were, how how much meat there was there to write about. I would submit that on the web-based interface along with essentially a thumbs up, thumbs down. And then that application would get looked at. One of the things I appreciate about the way that UVA does this is that every application is looked at at least three times. So after I would do my review, someone just like me would do exactly the same thing without having access to anything I wrote. So without having access to my recommendation, that person would also recommend thumbs up, thumbs down, and would write their own little one paragraph summary. And then the director of admissions would be the third pair of eyes. And he would, I assume, I don't know this, I assume he would start by reading our summaries and our recommendations. And then he would have the final say on whether or not to admit that person or not. Were you given instructions beforehand about what should constitute a thumbs up and what should constitute a thumbs down? No, I sought guidance a couple times when I first started doing it, looking for, I don't know what to say other than guidance. There were a few times, a few of the earlier applicants that I reviewed, I wanted to get someone else's opinion on before I wrote the summary and the recommendation. So one of the full-time UVA staff members was a classmate of mine. She's the one that, that actually got me involved in the process. So a couple times I reached out to her, asked her to look at the file, asked her what her thoughts were, and made sure that my thoughts on the file weren't way off of hers. Is that Brigida? No, no, it's not. It's um, a woman named Grace Cleveland. Oh, okay. And so I don't know if you can actually give us an example, even in general terms, but what did you learn by trying to calibrate your recommendation with Grace's? I mean, what sort of thing turned out to be a thumbs up that might have been a thumbs down or vice versa? In answering that question, you have to keep in mind that it's in the context of people who are presumptive denials, right? So what I was looking for was I wanted to make sure that the people that I thought were extraordinary and should be considered for admission were the kinds of applicants that UVA was looking for. And conversely, I wanted to make sure the people that I was kind of quickly getting rid of in my mind weren't the kind of people. I decided, and, and Grace kind of confirmed for me, that what I was looking for were applicants who, for whom there was a reason why their LSAT score was lower than what it should be or what we were looking for, or their GPA score was lower. You know, for example, if you took your LSAT in Afghanistan, well, okay, that's not conducive to a 172, right? The service academies just don't give A's. <laughs> they just don't, like nobody at West Point or Annapolis or the Air Force Academy gets a four point. Very, very, very few people get a 3.9. So I was looking for those kinds of people and people who had stories or characteristics or something that was notable enough to kind of overcome a lower LSAT or GPA number that we were looking for. The example that springs to mind for that, the most impressive candidate I saw actually of the 1,500 applications that I looked at, met neither our LSAT score nor our GPA target. This was a woman who her GPA was like a 3.65 maybe from a very good school. Her LSAT was like a 167-ish, I think. So lower than what we were looking for. But when I read her personal statement, I learned that she had been raised in 13 different foster care facilities. She never 
in her own words, and never had parents. Despite that, got a full ride scholarship to Berkeley. While she was there, she wrote a bill for the California State Legislature that provided additional benefits to foster care kids. Then she testified in support of that bill, and then the governor signed it, so it's now the law in California. I mean, that story is incredible. And I'm sure that everyone listening to this is thinking to themselves, well, that's not me, right? No, it's not, but it's the most extreme example of a way to, or of a story, of a personality, of a, of a story that is noteworthy enough to make up for an LSAT or a GPA. So is it fair to summarize that there are um, two things that need to be true in order for you to recommend someone who's below both numbers? Number one, there needs to be a contextualizing reason for their lower scores. And number two, in addition to that, there needs to be an incredible story. I don't know that both need to be true. If you were below both of the numbers by more than a point or two, then yeah, I'd be looking for both. But if, for example, you're, you had a 3.9 and your LSAT was just below what we were looking for, and you could tell me something about what was going on in your life while you took that LSAT score. I mean, I read a number of, and I'm not making this up, I read a number of LSAT addenda that were like, I took the LSAT within three days either way of giving birth, right? Like, you should reschedule that LSAT, things like that. Is that an example of a good reason to score lower or a bad reason because they didn't reschedule? Oh, no, that's a, that's a good reason. That is a good explanation for an LSAT score that would be below what it might have been otherwise. Now, might that person also have rescheduled that LSAT? Yeah, probably, but that's fine. That's interesting because even if they have a really good reason for a lower score, ultimately the dean is still to some extent beholden to his medians. But it sounds like maybe you didn't worry about that part. You made your recommendation without respect to those medians and let the dean figure out whether or not UVA could absorb the candidate. Is that right? Yeah, without respect to the... It wasn't the median because you're always trying to raise the median. So the numbers that I had were actually above the UVA medians. But I would make that evaluation without respect to the median or the target, but not without respect to what the actual numbers were, right? So if you were below, a 168 is going to be better than a 163, right? They're both below what we're looking for but I would be more likely to recommend a 168 than a 163. And why is that? That might be a stupid question, but there it is. It is because, and this is, that's not a dirty little secret of law school admissions. It's just an unpleasant fact of law school admissions. Law schools care a lot about their U.S. News and World Report ranking, and LSAT numbers and GPA numbers are the largest two components of that ranking. So admitting a 168 would have less of a lowering effect on UVA's median than admitting a 163. This is a pedantic quibble. Um, I'm not sure that's true, right? Because a median is calculated by okay. figuring out how many applications are below the number and how many are above the number. Right. right. It would decrease the mean, not the median. But you're right that one wouldn't decrease the median, but admitting four 163s, well, now you've got that might actually decrease the median. And there's the 25th and 75th percent, you know, there's that whole mess. Can you give us another example of a story that may not be as extraordinary as the woman who passed a law? 
but a story that would make you sit sure. up and take notice and say, yeah, I think I am going to recommend this person. So African-American male, varsity football player at the University of Chicago, his LSAT score was below a good number of points, four, five points below what we were looking for, I think, maybe more. And his GPA was comparatively even lower below what we were looking for. But he was a varsity football player at the University of Chicago. I recognize how much time varsity athletes spend on their sport. And so in my mind, I would kind of raise their GPA up accordingly. A 3.5 from a varsity athlete, in my mind, is a 3.7 from a non-athlete. And then this guy, he was doing Teach for America at an inner-city Chicago school where he was mentoring inner-city elementary school, which is an odd thing for a 23-year-old dude to want to do, right? And then he was mentoring a couple African-American boys in that neighborhood. So I found him to be impressive. Yeah. And so if you could summarize what you were looking for, um, how would you do that? I mean, you've already said you're looking for a great story, but what kind of story are you looking for? Um, are you not sure? Is it just, I'll see? Or did you have specific ideas of what people might do? I forget the Supreme Court justice that said this about either art or pornography, that he knew it when he saw it, but you know it when you see it. It might be better, or maybe a, a good way to explain that is for me to describe the structure of the little summary that I would write. So that would be LSAT score slash GPA, undergraduate institution, major, because that actually matters, right? Hard sciences are harder than, I was an economics and psychology major. Biomechanical engineering is harder than economics and psychology and therefore is more impressive than economics and psychology. Whether they were a member of an underrepresented minority, whether they had any conduct issues, that is huge. And then a summary of their activities, or not a summary of, whatever was notable about their background activities, work experience, whatever was notable about their story. Oh, and then a sentence or two about the letters of recommendation that they got. And honestly, I could talk about letters of recommendation for the remainder of the webinar, but you'd be surprised how many letters of recommendation I read that didn't help the applicant at all. Um, in fact, some actually hurt the applicant. Surprise us. Tell us why. So I think this is just my hypothesis, right? This is just what I came to believe after reading, I don't know, several hundred applications. I think that particularly professors believe that writing letters of recommendation is a part of their job and are therefore reluctant to decline to write a letter. They feel like they have to agree to write letters when they are asked to write letters. So they've developed this code for, this is not actually a letter of recommendation, right? Like there are words that they slip into the letters that make it clear that they're not actually recommending the person. I think that's either because it's, like I said, they think it's part of their job or because there's something of a social pressure, right? Like it's kind of awkward to say, no, I'm not going to write your letter of recommendation, right? You're kind of telling someone that they're not that good. So those two things combine to poor letters of recommendation being written. There's also, you'd be shocked at how many letters I read that were, oh, I don't know, three or four paragraphs, right? Like less than a full page. And the first, a full third of the letter would be all about the professor, right? Like I'm the distinguished 
chair emeriti of whatever, blah, 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 blah. My research is in blah, blah, blah. And they wouldn't even get down to talking about the person that was the subject of the letter until at the middle of the page, right? Like, that's not good. That's not helpful. Many applicants could probably think of the professors they had that would write that letter. Don't go to them for a letter of recommendation, right? So those are the harmful. Well, the last example is not harmful. It's just not particularly helpful. What is also not helpful and what I read a ton of were letters that were essentially the following. I had David in my large biology lecture. I teach a hard class. He got an A. That means he's smart. And the TA wrote good notes about it. That's a useless letter, right? That doesn't do anything more for your application than seeing the A on the transcript does. I would rather have a letter from that TA. Here's how I know that David is really smart. One day we were going through a really hard problem set and he was the only one in the section of 25 students that could follow with me as I went through the problem set. I don't care that that person doesn't have a PhD after their name yet. I don't care that they're, you know, 24. They're not the professor of whatever. They know you better than that professor does. And as a result, they can write a good letter. That is really helpful. What was the code like with these professors who are recommending but not recommending you? Professors frequently will place the person in the top whatever percent of their students, saying they're in the top half or top third or even top quarter, or even honestly like top 20%, not particularly helpful. Not only not particularly helpful, that's actually a bad thing, right? Like you've taught for 30 years, you've had thousands of students, this person is in the top 10,000, like, oh, thank you very much, right? That doesn't really help. So if I had one suggestion for applicants and letters of recommendation, it would be the following. You want to avoid those letters, right? You want to make sure that the letters of recommendation that are part of your application are outstanding letters of recommendation. So I think the way that you should do that is when you approach someone and ask them if they are willing to write you a letter of recommendation, don't ask if they are willing to write you a letter of recommendation. Ask if they are willing and able to write you an outstanding or great or pick whatever superlative you want letter of recommendation because it does a couple things. One, it kind of gives them the opportunity to back out, right? It keeps you from getting that top third letter because it gives them the opportunity to say, you know, Scott, I could write you a good letter of recommendation, but you're in my top 20%. I save my great letters of recommendation for the top 3% of my students. And if that's the case, then you don't want that letter. If you ask them if they can write you a great or outstanding letter and they say yes, then you've kind of established like a little miniature social contract here where they know that they are on the hook for writing a great or outstanding letter and I think they are more likely to do so, right? They're less likely to phone it in. They're more likely to take the time and write the kind of glowing letter that you want to have. That is spectacular advice. My only concern is that there are probably some students who probably just cannot get an outstanding letter from any professor. So I wouldn't want them to go around saying, can you write me an outstanding letter? Can you write me an outstanding <laughs> letter? And then come right. back at the end and say, okay, actually, can I have that mediocre letter? Right, yeah, I guess you would know I would hope that those people would be self-aware enough to know that that was unlikely to happen, right? So like, as an example, I'm in the process of applying to medical school right now, and I do not have a letter of recommendation from a science professor because I've been out of school for 20 plus years, right? I'm taking an online course in biochemistry 
in order to check the box of a couple of my medical schools, I may have to ask the professor of my online biochemistry class for a letter of recommendation. That's not someone that I'm not going to ask him for an outstanding letter of recommendation because I'm not even, he's never seen me, right? Like it's just, I'm going to ask him if he can write, please just check this box. I just need you to check this box. Just write, you know, professor biochemistry, PhD, Scott Jones on a piece of paper and send it in. Like that's all I need from you. Scott, I want to turn to the question of character and fitness issues, Mm -hmm. which is either vexed or perhaps just influenced by the fact I would imagine that you're a prosecutor or that you were a prosecutor. So what sort of thing was forgivable in your mind and what sort of thing would really, really pull an application down? So I can't tell you how many times I wrote in my summary conduct, but not really just weed or conduct, but not really just minor in possession in a dorm, right? I didn't care about that. I don't think anyone in law school missions honestly cares about that. What we do care about are conduct that is both more significant than that, particularly if, or an aggravating factor would be, if the applicant seems not to have internalized the lessons that they should have learned from that conduct. So. I remember one guy who assaulted a woman at a party because he believed that she had falsely accused a friend of his of sexual assault. So he then threw a beer in her face or something at a frat party. Okay, so let's talk about both kind of aspects of that. That's worse than weed, right? That's not a minor in possession. That's you actually assaulting someone for a ridiculous reason. And the way that he wrote about it wasn't at all, I don't want to say apologetic because it's not apologetic that you're looking for. It's his perspective hadn't changed that much from the moment he threw the beer. It didn't change his life at all. The way he addressed it sounded like he was still the 21-year-old kid standing at the frat party. Like it just didn't contrite. Somebody just said contrite in the panel. That's a good word. Did you get a sense if people were genuinely remorseful and had genuinely internalized it or if they were just slick and knew what to say? You could tell when they were clearly not remorseful. People definitely knew what to say. But if you can't even be bothered to say what it is that you should say, or if you're just not self-aware enough to know what it is that you should say, then you're not someone that I want to have at my law school. Well, and at the other end of this, at the far end of this, for the people that are listening here, is actually passing the bar and becoming a practicing attorney. And there is a conduct and fitness component to that as well. So we don't have any interest in filling a spot with someone who is never actually going to be able to practice law. Going back to the example you've already used, if that applicant had written a very good character and fitness addendum and demonstrated some remorse and maturity, would that kind of offense then become passable? Would you consider recommending him? I would consider it. I would still have some concerns, less so than for undergraduates. Law schools are still responsible for the safety of their students, right? And so any kind of assaultive behavior is going to be a problem. But, you know, throwing a beer at somebody is not the same thing as punching somebody. You know, frankly, for a man to throw a beer on a woman is worse than, in my mind, him throwing a beer on another man, or frankly, maybe even punching a man. I mean, there's some power dynamic there that he took advantage of that I don't particularly appreciate and that I would worry about. Does it matter to you how far in the past the offense was? Yeah, sure. Sure. 
putting aside the violent stuff, I didn't care at all about things that happened in high school. You did care about violence that happened in high school? Yeah, I would. I don't know that all law school file reviewers would. I proselytized for UVA Law because I had such a great time there and it's such a great school. And one of the things that's great about it is the people that are there. So I'm kind of protective of that school as an institution more than I would be if I hadn't gone there. And I don't know how many law school application reviewers have actually gone to the school. Well, one, feel the way that I do about their law school and are even looking at applications to their law school. That's great. I'm sure that makes you the ideal reader. I mean, I think the person reviewing the files really should be a curator of the class and a loving curator, somebody who is really concerned about keeping the school great. Yeah. And I, I think it also yeah. probably helps to keep that in mind when you're applying to the school. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I could keep asking you questions forever, but I know we have a lot of people, so I want to get to their questions as well. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. We may take some from the chat window. We may take some from the Q&A app, but we really like to hear your voice. So I'm just going to call on you, and you can unmute yourself and ask a question. All right. Bria? Hi, can you hear me? We can, yep. yeah. Hi, David and Scott. Thank you so much for having this. This has been very informative. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So my question is regarding a former supervisor who now is pretty much my career mentor, and he has agreed to write one of my letters of recommendation. So I want to know, is it appropriate for him to disclose that he is now my mentor, or should he just keep it from the perspective of understanding my work ethic when he was my supervisor? I think it helps a lot. I think not only is it appropriate, I think it's a great thing for him to include that he's your mentor. I think that because that fact alone says a lot about his opinion of you, right? You're not going to choose to mentor somebody who you don't think is competent. So absolutely appropriate and absolutely a good thing, and he should include it. As a matter of fact, and I don't think we got to this when I was talking about letters, that might be the type of relationship, and I want to be clear, this type of relationship is rare particularly among professors, but maybe more common amongst professional reference supervisors. That might be the kind of relationship where you can say to him, it sounds like you've already done the ask, right? But that might have been the kind of relationship where when you asked him to write the letter, it might not have been inappropriate for you to say something along the lines of, I know you're busy, so I've taken the time to just write a first draft. And you give him the letter of recommendation for you that you wrote, Right? And you want to make sure you give it to him in electronic format so they, they know that they can change it however they want. But if you have the kind of relationship with your boss where that is appropriate, then I think you should take advantage of that. And I think you should write yourself the outstanding letter of recommendation that you want. As long as you are presenting it to them as a draft and in a format where they can edit it and you know all the anonymity stuff about the the way that that works on law school applications. I think that's totally appropriate, and I encourage people to do it. Okay, thank you. Yes, that's actually exactly how it's pretty much been. He's a big time person at the Pentagon, and so I've kind of outlined what I've been doing to date and how this relates to my desire to go to law school in like a yeah, yeah. pretty much an essay format and just handed it over and, and let him fill in all the things that he finds as my qualifiers. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. And also, not just for you, Bria, but for everybody, bring a resume. When you ask somebody for a letter of recommendation, bring a resume or a CV or 
you know, a summary of what you've been doing so that they can talk about things other than their personal exposure to you. Thank you. You're welcome. That's really helpful. All right. Good luck, Bria. Stephanie, you can ask her question. Thank you so much. Can y'all hear me? Yep. We can. Hi, Scott. Fellow Marine officer here coming to you from Okinawa, Japan. And I was oh, actually nice. curious that any advice you might have about how I can leverage that in applications. Yeah, the same way that you are going to leverage it for the rest of your life, right? So leadership experience, responsibility. What's your MOS? I'm an air support control officer. Okay. How many Marines do you have? Two. It's a very technical MOS. It's not as much leadership yep. focused, unfortunately. Yeah. Yep. Mine too. So I never had more than four, I think, four or five. But you have been responsible for people in a way that the average law school applicant has not, right? The average law school applicant is either a 22-year-old fourth-year college kid or has been in investment banking for a couple of years or Teach for America. So one responsibility, two, are you an academy grad, ROTC, or OCS? OCS, sir. Yeah, okay. So I cannot be convinced that there is anything harder to do than Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. That is a um, fact. <laughs> that is, I still have nightmares. It's been, it's been 17 years and I still have nightmares about sergeant instructors and not getting any sleep and freezing to death. Law school, a lot of people don't do well in law school because it's the first time in their life that they've done anything hard, right? I mean, if you're just a fairly smart person, you can kind of coast through high school and college and whatever kind of jobs you get. And then you show up at law school and it's like, oh my God, this is really, really hard. That will not happen to you. You could make a great personal statement talking about that or a great addendum talking about that. Have you deployed at all? Just on a mute. There may be some good stories in there that could be the topic of a good personal statement. I just flew to the desert and then flew home. So I don't have any mute stories. But no, there's all kinds of stuff. And I meant it when I started by saying that like the same stuff you're going to be talking about for the rest of your life, right? Like in interviews for jobs 20 years from now, Someone's going to be asking you about the, you know, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? And you're going to say, I still have nightmares about officer candidate school because it was so. So, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff there. It's easy when you're in to lose track of or to not have an appreciation for other people's appreciation for being a Marine or being in the service at all. Once you get out, you kind of recognize like, oh, people actually do like they find us a lot more impressive than I find us. So just kind of keep that in mind. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck, Stephanie. Zephyrine, we'd love to hear your question. Hi, thank you so much. I just had more of a quick minute detail kind of question. I began working on my personal statement and some optional essays. And I was wondering when you read those, do you have a preference of whether or not we should be using contractions? Because sometimes when I'm writing, I feel like the story flows a bit better when I use contractions compared to if I were to write it out. But I guess stylistically, does one way more than the other in a good way? Not in my mind. I tend to write informally because I speak informally. So no, it doesn't matter. However, whatever, I don't know, David, do you have any thoughts on that? You've looked at more. I give my formal official seven stage blessing with extra fairy dust on contractions. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I think yeah. that whatever prejudice makes people worry about that is probably very outdated and can't prove this, but I would suspect that even if there were some admissions officer who said, don't use contractions, 
I bet they wouldn't actually penalize you and, and possibly not even notice because they're so common and invisible. Let me recommend a product that's actually not a seven sage product and it's not a competitor or anything, David. You're fired. Yeah. <laughs> Grammarly. If you haven't heard of Grammarly, it is a good, there's a free version of it that checks your grammar. It's worth it. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely check it out. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. it. Good luck, Stephanie. Thank you. Her question made me think of something. Before we get to Ms. Wang's question, can I? So the reason why I included the length of the average application in my earlier comments is because, all right, so I looked at 1,500 applications two cycles ago. That meant that they each got, on average, seven minutes, right? And that's seven minutes to look at 30 pages. In those seven minutes, I would be scanning your transcript and looking for the explanation for why your GPA is below what it should be, right? I got to find the organic chemistry class that you took your freshman year that you bombed that caused you to not be a pre-med anymore and that like ruined your GPA, right? And that takes time, but I still only have seven minutes. So a personal statement that is five pages long may be too long. Four letters of recommendation may actually not be as good as three letters of recommendation or two if the third and the fourth took time away from reading your very good personal statement. So contractions are a, the ultimate example in how to save time reading, but it made me think of that. Yeah, it's like the oft-quoted saying, I'm sorry that I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. Right. Maybe right. it's not quite like that, but what you're saying is you have a fixed amount of time. It's a zero-sum game. So even if you have some pretty good material, it's possible that it could sort of lower the grade point average of the whole application, especially if it prevents you from spending more time on the exceptional material. Yes, but I would encourage you to think of it as you have a limited amount of this person's attention. So spend it accordingly. That is really, really helpful. HK, you can ask your question. Thank you so much for this webinar, Scott and David. My question would just be for some people, they always know they want to go to law school, but for some people like me who didn't figure out until in their 30s. So what's your number one suggestion for people like me who couldn't change the old GPA anymore and who just changed course and decided to go to law school? What would be your number one suggestion to build a compelling case for law school admission? And also for GPA, how much does that actually play for people like me who's in the professional world for such a long time? GPA is always going to matter for law school ranking purposes. So in that sense, it matters for you the same as it does for a 22-year-old. But professional success after college can offset a lower than ideal GPA. Whatever it is that you do, whether you've been at success in the military, finance, you're an entrepreneur, music, dance, like whatever it is that is your field, if you have succeeded in it for any reasonable amount of time, like more than a year or two, then that suggests that you are a more capable person than your GPA might otherwise. If I were to read an application from a 32-year-old who had been a success at something, I would be looking for more of a, this is why I want to go to law school than I would be from a 22-year-old. And I don't know that that's even a logical thing, if that even makes sense for me to do that. But 
I would just kind of be naturally looking for, or maybe it does, right? Like if you're giving something up, if you're giving up a career to go to law school, then I'm at least curious why. So I, you might want to answer the or address the why law school in your personal statement even more than a 22-year-old applicant would. On another note, the only GPA that goes into the U.S. News and World Report ranking is your undergraduate GPA. If you went to grad school of some kind after undergraduate, that GPA, your graduate school GPA doesn't count. So yes, I will note, like if you got a 3.4 in undergrad and then a 3.9 in grad school, I will note that, but don't think that it really balances out the 3.4 because it doesn't. And oh, by the way, grad schools apparently grade really, really easy, which is not professional schools, not medical school, law school, dental school, but like, you know, master's in English degrees. Virtually every graduate transcript I saw like that was a three eight three nine four point. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's good to know. Actually, my grad school GPA was lower than my undergrad. That's good to know. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, that's it for me. Yep. Okay, good luck, HK. Let's go to Alicia. Hi. Thank you all for taking the time to do this. So I'm one of the people that I've known I've wanted to go to law school my whole life. I've grown up in the foster care system, and I've always just felt a really strong urge to pursue law to do work with children. And I just didn't know if whenever you're reading applications, is it good to indicate that you have a specific interest already, or is it better to start with like a blank canvas? You mean an interest in a particular area of the law? Yes. If it's well thought out and informed, absolutely. You have a great story that you could tell in a very good personal statement, which is not really answering your question. But to answer your question, if you have an interest in an area of the law that is well-informed and well-founded, then yes. I include those qualifications because I can't tell you how many applications I read from applicants that like they were going to do public service law, right? Like 70 to 80% of people who apply to law school think that they want to go into public service law. And roughly 5% of law school graduates actually go into public service law. So as a reviewer, I got kind of numb or inured or whatever the good word is to seeing that in an application. So from people who couldn't base it in experience or education or research or something, the way that it sounds like you can, Alicia, right? So it sounds like you could tell a very good, I want to go into this type of law because of the following experiences that I've had, right? That's a good personal statement, essay, whatever you want to call it. If you didn't have that experience and you just wrote a, I want to help people personal statement or addenda, however you did it, that's actually not helpful and could in fact lower my evaluation of your application because it speaks to a lack of understanding of the reality of the expense of law school, the legal job market, how many public service jobs are out there. That helps a lot. Thank you. Good luck, Alicia. Landon, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for taking our questions and everything. I was just asking, wanted to ask regarding a GPA addendum. You've kind of given a couple of examples regarding LSAT addendum, such as the giving birth. Do you have an example of what would constitute a good GPA addendum? A medical problem of great significance. So you were hospitalized halfway through a semester and you missed a month. A death of a very close relative or loved one. And I do mean very close. 
A bad GPA addendum is like a diversity statement from a guy that looks like me. It can do more harm than good, right? So a GPA addendum that explains why you dropped from a 3.7 to a 3.5 because your uncle got sick, that actually harms you in my mind. You know, honestly, diversity statement from a white guy. Unless there's some other diverse thing about you, like the, I forget her name, the Marine that I was talking to earlier. That could make for an okay diversity statement from an otherwise non-diverse applicant. Along those same lines, if, say, for instance, you had like maybe your second year of college, you had a bad year, and then you had 4.0 from then on out, would you let that speak for itself? How much a review would the transcript get, and then you say, oh, they showed good improvement, or would you write a GPA for that? No, I don't think I would write that. I might write one... I said earlier, I was looking for, you know, if you failed organic chemistry and then stopped being a pre-med, a short, and I do mean short, like one paragraph addendum on that might be helpful. You want to make sure that the reviewer doesn't miss it if they didn't have enough time to go through your transcripts with that fine a detail. What I hated seeing were the addenda that came across more as excuses than explanations, right? Like if your GPA is low because your father died, that's an explanation, right? If your GPA is low and you include an addenda saying it's because you broke up with your girlfriend or boyfriend, like that's an excuse. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck, Landon. And I should say to everybody, like, does that sound harsh? Yeah, it may. A lot of the things that I've said here may be harsh, but this is a evaluative process, right? And also keep in mind that how we started this, I had the applicants that were the presumptive denials, right? So I could be harsh because I was looking for the diamond in the rough, I think is the expression. Okay. Carson, we'd love to hear your question. Hey, y'all. Thanks for doing this. Can you hear me? Yep. We can. So my situation is that I graduated three years ago, had planned to do two years of volunteering for the volunteer program and had intended to apply to full law school after that, but actually ended up taking, as many LSAT studiers find out, the LSAT takes time, and have taken the last year mostly off to just focus on studying LSAT. And then in the midst of that, trying to get a job halfway through this year, ended up with the pandemic outbreak and things. So that made getting a job kind of even more difficult. So my question is kind of the theme of addendum. How do we explain a situation where the weaknesses in our application might not be related to GPA or LSAT, but are kind of about how we've spent our time since undergrad. I don't know that I perceive that to be as much of a weakness as you seem to perceive that to be. Why do you perceive that to be a weakness? Just because a third of the three years wasn't full-time employment? Yeah, I've been unemployed and you know I had gone from a position that uh, had maybe some prestige attached to it, but now doing kind of like deliveries for DoorDash. And I just don't know how that's received, I guess, by an admissions committee. I wouldn't worry about it, especially now. I mean, I think <laughs> the economy being what it is, I think law schools are about to be inundated by unemployed applicants or, you know, not significantly employed applicants. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that to sound derogatory at all. I think you're being harder on yourself than you need to be. Excellent. And especially with the taking a year off for LSAT, I didn't know if that was something that the law schools maybe have changed their mind on the last couple of years or how that's perceived. I'm sure I read a ton of applications for people who did that, but I don't remember ever thinking like, oh, this is bad, right? Like it's a form of preparation. You have to do well in that test. In order to do well in that test, you need to study full time for it. And that makes you 
more likely to do well on that test, which is a requirement. So Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck, Carson. I think we're going to leave it at that. Scott, do you have any last advice for us? Apply to UVA. <laughs> go, to, go to UVA if you get in. In all seriousness, so I would go to these LSAC forums. And because I was from UVA, I'd have a crowd. Me, the Stanford guy, the Harvard guy, the Yale woman would have crowds. And I taught at Gonzaga last year or a couple of years ago. So I don't mean to make fun of Gonzaga, but there'd be no one in front of the Gonzaga table, right? And I would say to the people I talked to, law school was the best three years of my life because it was, honestly. Part of that was because I'd just been in Iraq getting shot at, but still. And I don't think that any other recruiter, whatever you want to call that position, could say that. And not many lawyers can say that. So say that and then take as much time on your personal statement as you need to. Don't submit a crappy personal statement. It is the one part of your application that as you are writing your application, you can actually affect, right? Your LSAT score is what your LSAT score is. Your GPA is what your GPA is. Your personal statement can be what makes or breaks your application and you have control over that. Scott, thanks so much for telling us what's what in your soothing baritone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really learned a lot. I just appreciate your candor. Thank you. You're welcome. And so that the participants here don't think that I'm giving away UVA secrets, as I told you when we got ready for this, David, I'm willing to be open because I think that the way that I describe looking at applications is the best way to do it. So hopefully more people will want to go to my school as a result. Thanks, Scott. Have a good night. And thank you, everyone, for attending. Good night and good luck. Hi, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode useful. As always, you can reach out to us for more help with your applications on sevensagecom slash emissions. See you next time.